Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Happy Mother's Day, moms. We are very thankful for you, and I hope you're having a great day. On your way out today, we've got a gift for you. Uh, if today's one of your first times at our church, uh, we'd love for you to stop by the first-time guest tent. We've got an additional gift for you uh, if you'll stop by there. And then even if you're not a mom and you're visiting with us today, we'd love for you to stop by out there, and we've got something to bless you with. Just thank you for being here with us today. Let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into Hebrews chapter 12. Father, thank you <clears throat> just that we can come into your presence. Thank you that... Uh, we can gather in your name. Thank you that we can sing songs about the joy of you. And that's a joy because of our salvation, because you bring us back to you. Because even while we're sinners, your son Jesus died for us. And uh, Father, I pray that you would never let us get over our salvation, but that you wouldn't keep us to that moment of that first step, that you continue to grow us closer to you and use us for you. If there are any that don't know you today, that you'd save people, the people that do know you, I pray you'd have us each take just at least one step closer to you. Change us as a result of opening your word. I pray this wouldn't just be a religious gathering or a formality that we do them for mom or some step before lunch, but that we would meet with you, <clears throat> that your presence would be evident and that your truth would be heard. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, moms, you have a pretty incredible job. I've talked about it in past on Mother's Day sermons. I was thinking about it, I don't know if it was last year or two years ago. I talked about all the different roles you play. I talked about how moms can be, you know, at one moment they're a physician and then they're a psychologist and then they're an Uber driver and then a logistics coordinator. And there was actually a study done that went through to figure out how much you should be paid. And I will tell you, it was wrong because the answer is always not enough. And uh, we are grateful for you, but we realize it's an overwhelming job. It's one that's unique, and this week I was thinking about it's unique because most women at some point want to be a mom, but those that get the blessing of becoming a mom, there's moments where you wish you weren't a mom, but there's no getting out of it. Once you're in, you're a mom, and you may want to quit, and it may become overwhelming, but you keep going, and we want to thank you, and we want you to know that we appreciate you and love you, and every one of us here has a mom, and some of us, it's a great relationship, some of us, it's a tough relationship. Some of you would love to be a mom, but aren't for whatever reason. And I want to say to you, if you're here today, that's brave and courageous, and so we are proud of you and thankful that you're here as well. And moms, we think through some of the things that are difficult about being a mom. What about, did you know that scientists have actually said that we have a decision-making limit there's a capacity, like we can't go past a certain capacity of decisions that we make in a day. And so you think about it as a mom, not only are you making decisions for yourself, but for these other people too. And then you make, multiply that based on how many kids you have. Some of you at some point, now that you know this information scientifically, when your kids ask you, what's for dinner? You can say, I've reached my decision-making capacity. <laughs> I read one author from the New York Times, John Tinnery, said, Tyranny, said this, decision fatigue helps explain why ordinary, sensible people get angry at colleagues and families, splurge on clothes, buy junk food at, at the supermarket, and can't resist the, deal, the dealer's offer to rust-proof their new car. No matter how rational and high-minded you try to be, you can't make decision after decision without paying a biological price. So maybe when your kids ask you what's for dinner and you've reached your capacity, instead of saying, I've reached my capacity, you can say, M&Ms. <laughs> It's not that you stop making decisions, you just don't make as good of decisions as you would have done before you hit your capacity. And they actually did another study on moms. They took some exhausted moms. I have no idea where they found these ladies. But they took some exhausted moms, and they were trying to figure out what wore you out, like what got you to this point. And one of the themes that they found 
was fear. It wasn't all the decision-making. It wasn't the schedules and the running around town and trying to help people not kill themselves and like all that kind of stuff. It was fear. And one of the primary fears was not being good enough. And so you see things like, you know, I'm sure most of you have very gifted children and they excel in everything they do and all that kind of thing. But you see parents that have those kids and they, you know, they humble brag on social media. It's so hard raising Johnny. He's so gifted and is reading this literature, not a book, like you got alphabet books and they're reading this literature. And then you're looking over at your kid who's got a Lego in his nose (laughs) and you're going, uh, what did I do wrong? I didn't know that needle nose players were literally for the nose. Um, So you're going through those processes as a parent. And you don't know if you measure up. And you're getting worn out. And we want you to know we appreciate you. I was thinking about my own story with my mom. Uh, I put her through the ringer uh, growing up. And I remember this one moment. Isn't it funny how your kids remember things that maybe you don't even remember, but they're never the things you think, like, this is what they're going to remember about their childhood. Like, we, we try to orchestrate these great birthday parties or vacations or memory moments. And then they come with some random statement you made at some moment you can't even remember. I remember my mom looking at me one time and saying, if you ever impale yourself. (laughs) I can't remember exactly why she was saying this, but she said, if you ever impale yourself, don't take it out. And I thought, it's probably sound medical advice. But at the moment I thought to myself, are you wanting to kill me? It might have been the moment when I climbed up the side of our garage and I fell off. Maybe she was like, hey, listen, I see who you are. I understand where this is headed. If you impale yourself... (laughs) Or the time, I remember one time when I came walking in, she was making dinner, and I took my baseball hat off, and blood just started gushing everywhere, and I looked at her, and I said, what's for dinner? (laughs) Someone had thrown a brick at my head, (laughs) which to the rest of you, you're going, oh, now I get it. That's why. That's why it is. And so to my mom, thank you that you didn't quit. And to you moms, thank you that you keep going. And some of you are at a moment where you're like, how do I keep going? Great news for you. Today's part two in a sermon we started last week about how to keep going in our faith. If you want to keep going as a mom, the best advice I can give to you is keep going in your faith, in your relationship with Jesus. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, where we were last week. In Hebrews chapter 12, last week we only covered the very first part of the first verse. Uh, but we we're trying to dive into this passage, this verses 1 and 2 in the book of Hebrews. And it's talking about how to move forward in our faith. And we said last week that before you can move forward, you've got to know where you're at. So kind of like a GPS, if you know after service today, you're going to eat lunch somewhere that you've never been before and you pop in your GPS, before it can tell you which way to turn out of the parking lot, it's got to know where you're at. And so every once in a while you'll see it'll say locating. And so what we were doing as a church is we took a significant portion of the service and we just paused and said, where are you at in your spiritual development? And I won't go through that. You can listen to last week's message if you want that. But the summary was we talked about, you know, some people have trusted Christ and you're a baby Christian. That's a new Christian. That's a miracle. It's incredible. But think about babies. They're cute. They're exciting. They are a hot mess. They don't know how to eat. They don't know how to walk. They can't do anything. They're totally dependent on someone else for their growth. Some of you are there. You're baby Christians. That's incredible. We're excited. But how do you move to the next stage? And we talked about toddlers. And toddlers, they can walk. They're starting to get some content. They're starting to learn how to talk. But they're dangerous. Parents of toddlers are always trying to protect them from themselves. And that's where some people are in their spiritual development. They know some truth about God, and they might push that to an extreme and miss some other truth about God and cause themselves some destruction. And so you're kind of trying to protect them from themselves. And then there's spiritual teenagers. Spiritual teenagers are exciting. Uh, But this is where most people get stuck. Because spiritual teenagers are people that have a lot of content. They can start to think critically. 
Uh, they know right from wrong, but they don't have very much experience in life. And that's where I think the majority of Christians in Raleigh-Durham are stuck. They've got information, they lack application, and so their spiritual journeys are stagnation. And most people will never make it past that point. But the next part is the exciting part of spiritual journey, that you become a young adult. Young adults, they know their identity. For Christians, they know their identity in Christ. They know some of their gifts, your spiritual gifts, some direction in your life, what the prize is, what you're actually striving for in life. And here's the kicker. Young adults begin to reproduce. And we spent time talking about if you do not make another disciple, you have not made it to this stage and you cannot skip this stage. At best, you're a spiritual teenager. And so there's young adults. Then adults, adults are wise and mature, and the way that you can see this best is they have some humility because they've made mistakes. They're the people that are great grace givers. And then there's another stage that few people ever get to. But even when you get there, you have not arrived. It's the sage. And the sage is the person that other people are seeking out. They want their wisdom, their experience. How do you, how do you live with such joy and gentleness and kindness and love, the fruit of the Spirit? And so I don't know where you're at today, but hopefully you've assessed even again as we talked about that just now. And how do we move forward? Look at our passage. The very first part is where we spent all of our time last week. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, chapter 11 was this hall of faith. Chapter 10, verse 36 says to endure in the race so that we'll get the, what has been promised to us, the reward. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so a great a cloud of witnesses, and that's what we spent all of our time on last week. Last week we spent all of our time talking about the people around you influence your future. I talked about one Harvard study that said 95% of your future success and failure is determined by your five closest friends. And I talked about how the Bible already taught that before Harvard figured it out. We looked at Mark chapter 2 and the guy whose buddies brought him and climbed him, dropped him in through the roof. And then Jesus said in Mark chapter 2 and verse 5 that Jesus saw their faith, their faith, not just his faith, their faith, and healed that guy. And forgave his sins. And who you're with matters. And what we talked about last week is what the Bible's telling us is you're with the Abrahams and the Moses and the Enochs and the, and the Rahabs. And I knew that some of us would sit there and be like, but those people are superheroes of the faith. That's not me. And I said, don't forget, they're murderers, liars, one's a prostitute. It's not that they were super qualified. It's they put their yes on the table. What about you? Put your yes on the table. These people from chapter 11 are cheering to you, yelling to you, called witnesses, that they're declaring, it's not just that they saw, they're testifying to you, you can do it, and it's worth it. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, new information for us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that's set out, set out before us. That's the only command in this passage. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the next part of this passage, we talk about how to move forward in our faith. I want to focus in on that statement here. When we look to Jesus, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. What did he do? He kept his eyes on the joy. You want to move forward in your spiritual journey? Passionately pursue ultimate joy. Passionately pursue ultimate joy. Now here's a reality whether you're a Christian or not. We're all going after joy. Every person is pursuing joy, satisfaction, pleasure, happiness, whatever synonym you want to use, we're doing that. And many people would say in every decision that we make. 
It's innate in every human being. You've been hardwired to pursue joy. That's why when you look around the world, even outside of Christianity, there are over 4,200 world religions. Why is that? Because we all want something more than this. We're all looking for something more. The Bible says it like this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, that God purposed eternity in our hearts. He's placed a longing in our hearts for more than this world has to offer. But you can go to secular statements and documents and find the same truth, that we're all going after joy and happiness. Uh, the Declaration of Independence, you have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the, at least the pursuit of happiness. I like how Blaise Pascal, he's a mathematician and philosopher, says it. He says this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, so we all might take different routes to get it, but whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take, the, the will never takes the least step, but to this object, happiness, joy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. So whether you're a drug addict and you think ultimate happiness is the next high, or whether you're a Christian and you believe that joy is ultimately found in Jesus Christ, we're all going after the same thing. We just don't all take the same road. And we don't all have the same end. And so I want to ask you a question right now. It might be the most important question anyone's asked you in a long time. What's the one thing in your life for which you'd lose everything else? You don't have to answer. Kind of another self-assessment. don't have to answer out loud, but I want you to answer in your heart. What's the one thing for which you'd lose everything else? Because what our passage is saying is look at Jesus. He was willing to leave heaven, come to earth, experience shame, be stripped naked, nailed to a cross, die a criminal's death. He endured the cross, not just the physical pain of that, but the wrath of God being poured out on him. How? Because he knew the one thing for which he'd lose everything else. And it says in our passage, it's the same same thing that we're pursuing, joy, pleasure, happiness. Use whatever synonym you want. Look at the passage again. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run the race that's set out before us. How do we do that? What, what way would we do that? Looking to Jesus, the founder. He's the originator of your faith, the pioneer of your faith, the perfecter. He's with you through the faith, completing the faith. Who, for the, underline that word, joy, was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus knew the one thing for which he would lose everything. It was joy. Which means in that one three-letter little word, there's a lot of importance. What does it mean? What was his joy? Well, I think this passage actually answers it for us when it says in the next statement uh, that he sat down at the right hand of the Father, that he knew that the resurrection was coming. He knew when he went to the cross, and he endured the cross, that he ultimately would be seated in victory in a seat of glory. And so I think that his joy has at least three elements. One is the glory that he would receive. It was the glory that he was given before the world began. He prays about it in John chapter 17. And so that it was his, the original glory that he had was going to be restored. So it was for glory. It was also that he completed the Father's will. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
Not my will, but your will be done. Well, if you look at the context of this passage, what we're being told back in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 36 is that, that we're supposed to endure. It says, for you have need of endurance. But why? Why do I got to keep going? So that when you've done the will, that's God's desire, his longing, what he loves of God, you may receive what is promised. So that's interesting because some of you grew up with a brand of Christianity that told you, you just do it right for what's right's sake. Kind of a Christian stoicism, self-denial. The Bible says a lot about self-denial. But it also incentivizes that self-denial with a reward, and the reward is pleasure. And so some of you have gotten this idea that God's against pleasure. God's not against pleasure. He's against pleasure wrongly placed. When you place that pleasure in the wrong thing, that's why I don't want you to tell me the answer to the question, what's the one thing for which you lose everything else? Because some of you know that it's wrongly placed pleasure, and I don't want you to be dishonest because we're at church. So you shouldn't lie at church. No, no, the point is, it doesn't help you. Because you might know the right answers, but you know what's going on in your heart, and I'm more concerned with what's happening in your heart. So what's the one thing for which you lose everything else? It's something that you believe ultimately will bring you delight, joy, happiness. The same thing was true for Jesus. And so he got joy in doing God's will, what pleased God, and being glorified. But the third thing is powerful to me. I think the joy was you. And it's not me just making that up. Because that's what the Bible says. In Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Jude, so if you ever say, I'm going to read a whole book of the Bible, Jude chapter 1. <clears throat> At the end of it, it says verse 24, it talks about Jesus' joy. And look what it says. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you, blame, to present you and Moses, murderer, and Rahab, prostitute, blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You're his joy to present you a sinner blameless before God who's holy. That is his joy. And so for that, he endured the cross. He knew the one thing for which he would lose everything else it was that joy. What about you? I read a story this week about a woman named Elizabeth Joyce. And you can look her up online. You can find this story. But Elizabeth had been dating her boyfriend, Max, for two years on the day he proposed, she also found out she had cancer. Can you imagine the, the tension of those emotions? Finding out you have cancer and then also being proposed to. Like the joy and the, the grief and the struggle. And she didn't want to fight the cancer. But he said, you have to fight. So she fought and she did four rounds of chemotherapy. Some of you have been through that or you know loved ones who've been through that. It's a terrible experience. But the cancer went into remission. And so that was exciting for them in their marriage. But her greatest desire, Elizabeth's greatest desire, was to have a child. And they told her that that would not be possible. So you can imagine how shocked they were when she found out she was pregnant. <laughs> Max, her husband at that point, said, it, it blew the, I blew a gasket because exactly what they said wasn't possible was actually happening. <laughs> so you can imagine how shocked they were. And they began to plan for the baby. But a month later, uh, they called this couple in and said, we have bad news, your tumor's back because of all the hormones and things that are happening in your body and you either need to terminate this baby or risk losing your own life. And Elizabeth knew that she wanted more than anything to have a baby and bring that child into this world. And so we have a picture of her giving birth to this child just after she gave birth to this child, this little baby Lily that she had there. 
But she knew she was risking her life. She was able to spend five nights uh, at the hospital with her baby and came home and spent one night with Max and Lily before cancer took her life. But she knew her one thing. The one thing for which she'd lose everything else was Lily and bringing Lily into this earth. What's yours? For Jesus, it was you. You were the one thing for which you would lose everything else was you. The joy set before him that he was willing to, to put aside the shame, was what the passage is saying, to endure the cross, the wrath of God being poured out on him, his own father forsaking him at the cross. He was willing to do that for you. And the Bible tells you where you can find joy. It's actually in him. Now, we know that the scriptures say these things, but oftentimes, some of us, because of our upbringing, and we were told, no, you don't do it because of the reward, well, how, why does Jesus keep promising rewards then? Because he knows how we're made. He made us. The Bible says to seek pleasure. It says this in the Psalms, Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But don't want that. <laughs> That's ridiculous. God says he knows you want that. 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Hmm, sounds familiar. It sounds like us. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's Peter. It's one of Jesus' best friends. There was another guy that really hated Jesus. His name was Paul, and God got a hold of his life, and he wrote a whole book called Philippians. It's about joy. He wrote it while he was in jail. You should read that one too. Jesus himself said from his own lips in John chapter 15, after telling his disciples some commands, how they're supposed to live and that they need to abide in him, he says, these things I have spoken to you, here's the reason, that my joy, the joy of Jesus, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete or full, that you would have a fullness of joy. Here's the reality. God is not against pleasure. He's against pleasure wrongly placed. And the problem for many of us is the one thing for which we lose everything else is an idol. It's sin. And then we get mad at God when he's not delivering our idols to us. What kind of God would he be if he did that? That would make us God. And he's our servant. That's not who he is. He's saying, come to me. I am joy. That's why the pastor says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. He did the very thing that we must do with him, with us, who for the joy you set before him endured the cross. And so for us, saying, keep your eyes on Jesus. He is joy. He is pleasure. The problem for many of us is that we're far too easily pleased. We have not tasted and seen how good the Lord is and what fullness of joy is really like. One of the great Christian authors, C.S. Lewis, talks about self-denial in the Bible. He says it like this. He says, the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We're told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite. What did First Peter say? A joy inexpressible. When infinite joy is offered us. 
like an ignorant child. You don't even know what you don't know. Like an ignorant child. That's where some of us are at spiritually who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. (laughs) I had a talk with a friend after last week's message and he was talking to me about his struggle with pornography. And I said, oh, great news. I'm talking about ultimate joy next week. And he looked at me like, you're going to make me wait a whole week. Oh, that's cool. And he's been a Christian for a little while. And so I said to him, I said, what do you think ultimate joy is? Now, he answered the right answer for Sunday schools all across America. Jesus. Oh, that's right. So you don't even need to come next week. You got the message. And I said, why do you want porn? He said, cheap fix. That's right. Far too easily pleased. And then where does that leave us? Shame guilt, why do I want this? I don't want this, but I want this other thing. And, and some of you, it's porn. Some of, for a majority of people, uh, 60% of guys, 40% of women, statistics would say it's porn. And for others, it's other things. Ambition, like C.S. Lewis was just talking about. It's my job, if my job would just, or maybe you idolize your family. It's not wrong to love your family and want to sacrifice for your family, but your family becomes ultimate. You know your spouse is never, never going to deliver to you what Jesus can deliver to you. Neither will your kids, no matter how gifted they are. So, so why do we do that? We're too easily pleased. Now, many people have heard that quote by Lewis, but a lot of people don't realize that he was a skeptic, that his view of God actually was at one time that he actually said that God was like a vain woman asking for compliments, and that's why he demands our worship. I remember one time I had a skeptic skeptic look at me and say, the stuff you believe is crazy. You think that God sends good people to heaven, bad people to hell, and then he made people to tell him how great he is? I said, a couple problems with that. First one is, I don't think that God sends good people to heaven. I think he sends bad people to heaven, but they're bad people who have placed their faith in Jesus. He sends bad people to hell too, the ones who haven't placed their faith in Jesus. But the last part of what you said, that's tough because even a lot of Christians think that's what God's like. That somehow he demands worship from us like he's insecure and we need to boost his confidence or he's some egomaniac who knows how great he is, but he just needs you to tell him over and over. Listen to what Lewis said changed his view of who God is. You might not know this quote. He says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because, and this is the key, I'm going to read this really slow because this could transform the way you worship. Because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's part of the process of joy is the praise. And he gives an example. He says, it's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are the delight is incomplete till it's expressed. He's saying that worship is actually a fulfillment of our joy in Christ. So we sang that song earlier, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Do you know where that comes from? That comes from Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Do you know the context? The people are weeping because Ezra's been reading them the law and they're going, we're sinful. We're not doing any of this stuff. And then why would, why would God encourage them? But the joy of the Lord is your strength. Because they're coming back from exile and it's like the prodigal father saying to his son, my son is home. It's not about how good you are. You're awful. But I love you. And you're back. Let my, let my joy strengthen you to then walk with me. We're going to come to a passage in Hebrews in a little bit where it says, strengthen your knees. Lift up your drooping hands. It's from this joy. That's where it comes from. This joy that's found ultimately only in Christ. And Jesus promises it over and over in the Bible. Why at the, the woman at the well, he says, I'm living water. In other words, I'm ultimate satisfaction. 
John chapter 6, when they're coming for another meal, because he fed people, he says, I'm the bread of life. Look at that passage. It's really interesting. He doesn't say, eat me and drink me. He says, come to me. I'm the bread of life. He's saying, I am satisfaction. You experience it when you trust me. To weary and burdened people, in Matthew chapter 11, he says, are you weary and burdened? Come to me. I'm ultimate rest. I will give you soul rest because I am ultimate joy. Okay, so then how do we, how do we get to him then? Okay, back to our passage. Second point, purge everything that hinders your progress in growing in him. Wherever you're at, baby, sage, wherever you're at in between, purge whatever hinders your progress. Here's where it is in the passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, plural, all lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Some of you have read that passage lots of times and not taken note of the fact that it doesn't just say sin. It says every weight and sin. We keep our eyes on Jesus, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter, pioneer, and perfecter of our faith. So you keep your eyes on him, get rid of everything that hinders you from keeping your eyes on him because that's going to slow you down in your race. Last week, when we were talking about that great cloud of witnesses, I told you one of the things that Hebrews chapter 11 testifies to us is that when somebody else has done something, we know it's possible. I talked about the four-minute mile. Some of you have heard of that before, that uh, Roger Bannister in May 1954 was the first guy to break the four-minute barrier on the four-minute mile. People thought, scientists didn't think it was even possible. He did it. Forty days later, another guy did it. By the end of the year, multiple people had done it. Some of you have heard that story. What many people don't know is that he did that in May, the next guy did it about 40 days later. The next guy's name was John Landy. And in August of that year, 1954, those two guys raced each other. It was called the Miraculous Mile. Thousands of people came to watch it. For those of you who aren't familiar with the mile race, it's four times around a track. And so Bannister had in his mind that he was going to take it easy on the third lap, but Landy ran a lot faster than he had anticipated. So he had to run with him, got himself a little bit more tired out than he planned. They were shoulder to shoulder at the end of the third lap. Landy began to pull away in the fourth lap. Coming around the last corner of the fourth lap, Landy had pulled away significantly from Bannister, but Bannister decided he was going to run him down. And Landy could hear his footsteps coming from behind. Until the crowd got so loud that he couldn't hear the footsteps anymore, and he made a fatal flaw. And if you're a runner, you know what it is. He turned to look. The next thing he saw, Bannister passed him. He beat him by five yards in that race that day because he took his eyes off the prize. Our pastor says, you fix your eyes, keep your eyes on Jesus, and do whatever you have to do. Get what, not just sin, the passage says, every way and sin. So it's not just sinful things, there can be good things. See, the problem for some of us when we think about following Jesus, we're just asking, what's right, what's wrong? Okay, that's a simple question, not a wrong question, not the best question. The best question is, what's best? If that's the ultimate goal, anything that's hindering me from the ultimate goal is a distraction from what is best. Jock Murray, one of our elders, was teaching and training our staff this week, and he shared a quote from another pastor that I'd love to just take and take credit for, but can't because Jock knows. So, just kidding. It was another pastor, and he said this, our greatest fear as individuals and as a church is not failure. Failure is not the worst thing that can happen to you, by the way. It's not failure. It's succeeding at things that don't matter. Don't waste your life. There's a lot of good stuff that'll waste your life. And what this passage is saying is you get rid of the stuff, anything that hinders you. 
And if you've got a study Bible, you might look down at the notes or most commentators, what they say at this point is they'll talk about how first century runners and the Isthmian games and the different games that happened would run naked. They would literally take off their robe. They'd take off everything. But you know, when I start thinking about that in application of my own life, I go, that's not helping. I went to a track meet yesterday. Uh, my youngest daughter was in her first track meet, and I'm sitting in the stands with all these parents yelling for their kids, and who knows who some of these people are. And I was like, I'm running naked in front of these people. That would be a hindrance. Like what? Adam and Eve in the garden, they, did, they were vegetarians. They had to have good bodies. They didn't even have a McDonald's back then, like, right? And as soon as they found out they were naked, they put clothes on. So I'm thinking to myself, taking clothes off is a hindrance. But I know, I know what they're trying to say. They're trying to say they just get rid of anything that slow you down, get that off of you. And that's what they did back in the first century. But you think about what we do now. We have things called Spartan races. <laughs> have you seen these? Have you seen these? Anybody here done a Spartan race? You're crazy. Anybody done that? All right. In a Spartan race, what they do is there'll be different distances. Sometimes it's a 5K, sometimes a 10K. But they put obstacles, sometimes 25 obstacles in one race, and you don't know what they are. And so you might run up a hill, and at the top of the hill, there's a climbing wall. Are you crazy? I've got friends that have done these things. They'll put pictures of themselves. Some of them, they're told to carry logs and big metal balls or sandbags for a long distance of the race. Why? And so I started looking at this. I started thinking, how do you, if you don't know what the obstacles are, how do you train? I found a guy who had a blog who talks about how to train for Spartan races, and he gives seven tips. And one of them, he talks about the carries. That's when you have to carry this weight. He says this. In his, his blog, he says, adding to the tough terrain are the carries. Spartans will find t the toughest hill and make you hike up with a sandbag or a bucket. Jerks. This, no, he didn't say that. That's me. This is tough for most of us if you're not ready. I think it's probably tough anyways, but what he does is he tells you, here's a workout you can do so that you'll be ready. Crank the treadmill up to max incline. Have you ever done that? Because <laughs> running is not hard enough on its own. Crank, the, crank that up to max incline, run for five minutes, jump off the treadmill. Do 10 burpees, 10 pull-ups, 15 sit-ups, grab a sandbag, jump back on the treadmill. Run for five more minutes with the sandbag. Repeat eight to 10 times, to which I say, no. <laughs> and here's the kicker. People pay money to other people to do this to them. <laughs> Crazy. Why would you make running harder than it is? And then I thought, but we do that with following Christ. We're told to run the race. That's hard enough. But we make it even harder. We're trying to carry around a bunch of extra stuff that's slowing us down. So when it says here in the text to get rid of that stuff, what could that stuff be? Well, in context, how about this? Other people? You're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Some of you are surrounded by a not-so-great cloud of witnesses. If your friends are really going to determine 95% of your success or failure in your future, who are you running with? Some of you need to cut some dead weight. Oh, you can't talk about people like that. They need me. I'll tell they're going to find out about Jesus. Listen, they don't need you. They need Jesus, and you're not him. So some of you need to hear that because you've you got a little Messiah complex going or you're a people pleaser, and it's stopping you from getting to Jesus. Say, so, yeah, but what about their co-workers? I can't get rid of them. Or It's my kids. Shh, don't tell anybody. I'm a mom. So just smile today and take my flower. <laughs> some of you, it's your spouse is not a believer. Hey, you can't get rid of them. You're right. You can redefine how you relate with them, though, to where it's real clear. They're not the number one priority in your life. Jesus is. 
And this isn't counseling, so I'm going to walk through all the details of that. And if you want to talk more, we have plenty of people who would love to talk with you and talk in your small group about some of those things. And I had a guy after the first service, like, what about this relationship? What about that? And I'm like, yeah, there's a little mix here you got going on of wanting to reach people for Jesus and your people-pleasing. Um, again, you trust that God's sovereign? God will use you to get people to Jesus, but he doesn't need you. Who are the people that are most influential in your life? Some of you need to cut some people. Or your past. Some of you are carrying your past around like it's a sandbag in a Spartan race. Like you're new in Christ. You've been born again. You've received new life. You say, well, no, I did this stuff after Jesus. Yeah, and he says he is faithful and just. If you confess your sins, he cleanses you of all unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, so far as you removed all your transgressions. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Don't carry the condemnation around. Why are you walking around in shame and in guilt? Feel guilty when you sin because he's trying to restore you to fellowship. Once that fellowship's restored, you've been cleansed of all unrighteousness. Stop carrying that stuff around. Like Paul says, Pressing on towards what is ahead, I forget what is behind. Keep your eyes on the prize. It's Jesus. It's not your sin. It's not your... God, the past. It's dead weight. What are the things you're prizing? You're prizing things that aren't ultimate things. And if I asked you to actually say out loud, what's the one thing for which you'd lose everything else? Some of you, it's your career. Listen, some of you need to ask yourself questions like this. Are you a Christian who has career... Or do you have a career and you happen to be a Christian? Because if you're a doctor who happens to be a Christian, that's one thing. But if you're a Christian who has a practice of medicine that's a platform for you, that's totally different. See, it's determined by what you prize. Are, are you an athlete who happens to be a Christian? Are you a Christian with a platform of athletics? It's totally different. Are you a mom who happens to be a Christian? Are you a follower of Christ who's been given a great gospel opportunity? And some of them are really little people. It's very different. If you prize the wrong thing, you need to cut that because Jesus is the prize. So if everything and sin, it doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter, and the sin, it says here in this passage, and sin. Because sin, what does it do? It says in the passage, it clings to you. This is an image of like a spider web. You know, ever been walking, spider web gets stuck on, just kind of annoying. But what's the point of the spider web? Spider web is supposed to catch an insect that will then get itself, as it tries to get out, all tangled up, clings to it in the web, so that eventually the spider's going to come along and suck the blood out of that thing until it's dead inside. That's what sin does. You think about it, it's so much easier to see in other people's lives. One of the most obvious pictures of Somebody getting trapped in sin and the cycle of sin and the path of sin in the Old Testament is King David when he sins with Bathsheba. And many of you know the story that he committed adultery, but many of us don't realize the path that he was on. I mean, he, was, he should have been somewhere else. He was in the wrong place. He should have been out at war, but he chose comfort over God's calling. And so he's at home. And he looked, but he didn't touch. And so what's the big deal? It's just lust. It's, not gonna, it's what's going on in your heart that's the problem. And then he brings some other guys that must have been people pleasers because they were too afraid to confront David that what he was doing was clearly wrong. And then he commits murder. And then there's a miscarriage. And his life is a mess because David has entered a season of sin. Not just one. Satan's never just trying to get you with one thing. It's a season of sin in his life. But then in the Old Testament, he comes to a point where the people around him, Nathan, mattered. And somebody cared enough to confront him in his sin, even if he didn't want to hear it. And he did what Romans, or Hebrews chapter 12 says to do. He decided to cut the weight, to repent, to turn from his sin, 
And he talks about it. And do you know where you're ultimately being robbed? When you're seeking pleasure and lesser pleasures, you're getting ripped off. Because your joy is being stolen from you. In Psalm chapter 51, he says this. We'll put the verses up on the screen. Psalm chapter 51, we'll just hit a few of them. Verse 4. He says, after he's killed a man, after he's committed adultery with that man's wife, after he's lied and covered it up, after he's compromised other people's lives, he says, against you and you only have I sinned, God. Here's why he can say that, and that's true. Because every sin is an affront to the character of God. Every sin that we do, we're telling God, this is more valuable than you. This delivers more joy and satisfaction than you do. So first and foremost, and primarily always, we are sinning against God. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. And you jump down a few verses. Look at what he says in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. What he was longing for in that room with Bathsheba, it's been sapped from him. It's been stolen from him because he got caught in the web of sin. The lice been sucked out of him. And look at what he says. Let the bones you have broken, God, rejoice. He broke your bones so that you turn back to him, David. What does he say in verse 12? Restore to me the joy that's what's been lost, the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. What better way to teach other people than to treasure him most? Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Other people who are in the web that I was in will see me with you and turn to you. In verse 15, remember what C.S. Lewis said about what praise is for? Look at what the Bible says. Psalm 51, verse 15, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. What's he been crying out for? Verse 8, verse 12, joy, the joy that's been lost. Restore the joy of my salvation. I'll rejoice because of the bones that you've broken. And then what do I do to make that joy complete? Praise. See, sin is dangerous. And many of you as Christians know that it's dangerous for non-believers. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to man, and then it leads to death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. We get it, we get it, it's dangerous. But I got Jesus. And so we act like, I'd like some sex with a side of Jesus. I'd like some success with a side of Jesus. I'd like some mud pies with a side of Jesus. And we don't get to order like that, first of all. And what it reveals is we're far too easily pleased. And God's got greater joy for us. And what he's saying is you want that joy? Throw off the stuff that's hindering it. And so I would love it. I would love it if we could throw off everything that hinders our experiencing of Jesus today. But I was wondering, just an application for us today, what if we threw off one thing? Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's an experience. Maybe it's a show you're watching. Maybe it's some gossip you're involved in. What if you throw? Maybe it's sin. And if it was one sin, I bet you already know what sin God's been working on you with. Maybe anger, maybe porn, maybe substance abuse. I don't know. But I bet you know, and God knows. What if you turn from that right now? Think about how much lighter each one of us would be. At this church, we get, I don't know, 400 or so, 500 or so people in this room right now. If, the, if everybody did that, can you think about how different this church would be? Everybody threw up one sin? So I'm going to give us an opportunity to do that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. I'm going to lead us in prayer in a prayer, if you think that Jesus is actually better than your sin, then will you turn from that sin today and turn to him? And if you want to come up here in the front and pray, you can. No one will mess with you, I promise. We're not going to ask you what your sin is or figure that out. If you want to pray in your seat, you can. If you want to stand up, we sing a song in just a minute. You can, however you want to do that, but don't miss this moment. You know, we're going to come to a passage in a couple weeks 
that says that Esau got to the place where his heart was so hard he couldn't repent. Don't ever get there. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. I pray if there are any in this room or watching online that are not yet followers of Christ, that right now they would begin a relationship with you, they become babies in you, they'd be born again, they would turn to you and receive new life and receive forgiveness. And if that's you that God's speaking to, you can do that by acknowledging you want Jesus Christ to be your Savior. When you do that, the Savior means he's rescuing you, he's saving you from something, he's saving you from yourself, he's saving you from your sin, he's saving you from the wrath of his Father. And he did that by going to the cross for you and defeating death, and he can offer you life because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But you've got to take the life, and if you want to take that life, call upon him to be your Lord and Savior. And you pray that in any words you want to, just call out to him, and then and if you would, if you're on, online, put in the, the comments, put the word Jesus, and we'll give you some resources. If you're in this room, go to the next steps table out in the lobby and say, I prayed that prayer, and, and, and I, don't, I don't know what to do now. How do I grow? And we'd love to help you. If you're a follower of Christ already, is the joy of the Lord your strength? experiencing the joy of the Lord, the fruit of the Spirit of that joy? Are you seeking ultimately that joy? Are there things that are hindering you from that? And if there are things, what could be one thing right now that God might be speaking to your heart about shedding, about getting rid of, about not being involved in, about moving on from, about about throwing off? Don't be like those Spartan, right? You don't need extra weight. This race is hard enough. What's the one thing? I don't trust the Spirit to continue to work in your heart as you continue to talk to Him and our worship team's going to lead us. Nikki's going to say some words. But if you want to say, stay in that same posture with the Lord, or if you want to come up here and pray, just know that the invitation is open. It's in Jesus' name I pray.